Welcome back to I'm Interested. Uh, I'm Mike Greenberg, and this has been such a delightful fall for me to have launched this and to have taken part in so many really interesting uh, conversations. For those of you who are joining for the first time, this is the first baseball discussion we've done, so perhaps we have some baseball fans who haven't been with us before. The entire concept of this podcast was that I would just select a group of people that I find interesting and talk to them about the things that make them interesting to me. And we had the intention of doing eight of these interviews, and this is the 11th. (laughs) So that's how much fun uh, that I have had. And we're going to take a little break through the winter after this. And then come back in the spring with, with all new interviews and all new conversations. But I am just thrilled now that the World Series is behind us and we go into what is one of the more interesting parts of the baseball season every year, candidly, which is the hot stove season and everything else, um, to conclude this season with the commissioner of Major League Baseball and one of the most interesting people that I've been fortunate enough to come to know in my 30 years covering sports. Rob Manfred is going to spend a little time with us here. Commissioner, thank you very much for doing this. Uh, Mike, I'm glad to be with you as always. All right, so I, I want to start. There's so many different places that we could go, but I want to. I am not going to talk to you about all of the things that you get asked about every single day for the simple reason that you get asked about them every single day. I don't need to ask you about the attendance for the 6,000th time this week. So here's something I've always wanted to ask. I have, over the years, had the opportunity to spend a little time with you, with Bud Selig, with Roger Goodell, with David Stern, with Adam Silver. There's one thing I've always wanted to ask you, and I've never had the chance. When you have to make a ruling or a decision that you know is going to make one of your member clubs upset, you are, in essence, making a decision that is going to upset someone who is your boss. At the end of the day, that's who you work for. And that is a position I myself can't fathom being in. I I have worked for a lot of people in my life, and I've never had the authority to make a decision that I know they have to live with and they're not going to like. It's a fascinating psychological conundrum. Tell me what that's like. Well, it is one of the harder parts of the job. It is um, the part of the job that's political, right? I mean, like most politicians have to deal with things that affect their constituents, and that's really what you're saying. Um, my approach has been this. Uh, our 30 owners are a very rational group, and I think they understand that um, there is a governance aspect to my job, and what I try to focus on is doing the right thing. They may be annoyed in the short term, may not like the outcome in the short term, but I think in most instances they end up um, giving me credit for the fact that I'm trying to do the right thing. Um, when you get into thinking about your politics, that is, oh, I don't want to make a mad at then you start to make the wrong decision, and that's the place that you really hurt yourself. So it's one of those rare spots in life where, you know, the only path is just try to get it right. I always thought that Bud Selig had a leg up in that, if you will, because he came from that rank. So, so not only um, – might they view him differently? But he understood their concerns. Do you understand what I'm saying? And what what about that did you learn from him? He knew what their issues and concerns were. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I learned a ton from Commissioner Seelig. I think the, the one thing that um, may be most important is staying in touch with people that individual, I'm not talking about in a meeting with 150 people, mm-hmm. but those individual one-on-one conversations is where you um, 
kind of acquire a little human capital um, that helps you get over the issues that, that can be difficult because um, not every owner is going to agree with everything that you decide to do, particularly in the context that you raise. But um, Bud was a master at it. Um, I, I think it came to him naturally because he was one of them. Uh, but I've tried to follow um, that lead in terms of those personal conversations. He, he was given credit when, when I would talk to people about him. And again, I, I got to know him in my own context over the years, but this is something I wouldn't have witnessed. For being the best, I'll, I'll use an expression that could mean a lot of things, but the best backroom politician that you could ever possibly, which is to say he could get two owners in a room and just the three of them would sit there and I don't know if they're smoking cigars or whatever it is they're doing, but they would walk out and they would ultimately be doing what he wanted them to do. That's an art, isn't it? There, there is an art to that. Yeah, it's a, it's a skill um, that is underappreciated. Um, I, I think people... Um, sometimes believe that uh, you can persuade in a room full of people with your oratory and intellect and whatever. But I think um, it is equally true um, that sometimes things need to be handled one-on-one and Bud's small group one-on-one skills were really unparalleled in that regard. You, You could see it. And again, I think he sometimes doesn't get enough credit for some of the things he has accomplished in my tenure covering the sport, which is to say that when I got to ESPN, the conversation around the sport was they're going to need to contract some teams. There will never be economic parity. It is a case of haves and have-nots, and and this will this is not a sustainable model. And he somehow, as I always describe it, and it isn't as simple as this, but on some level it is, he convinced George Steinbrenner to share some of his money with the Minnesota Twins. And we are now in a time of unprecedented parity. Baseball has more parity than any of the other major sports. And that would, you would have been laughed out of a room for suggesting that was possible 20 years ago. Well, let me say a couple of things. First of all, um, you know, I do think people recognize um, what a great career Commissioner Selig had. I mean, he is a Hall of Famer. Yeah. It's, you know, what, what's left? Deification, I guess. But, uh, no, you know, I, I get it. I mean, you know. But he, I don't think, I, I honestly don't think that that part of it is recognized enough. Yeah. Because, because you, it's all well and good to add another, you know, to the wild card and, and interleague play and all that kind of stuff. But, but if the Yankees are winning every year, it really doesn't matter anymore. They needed to make that change, and he did that. I think that. The second and more important point is this. Um, Sometimes uh, his accomplishments, people attribute solely to the skills we talked about a minute ago. Just that, you know, you take the example of revenue sharing. There was a lot of strategic thinking there on his part that he does not get credit for. What he came to realize, and it it, it was a painful realization because it, you know, part of it had to do with the strike in 1994 um, was that there was one thing that was so valuable, particularly to big market clubs, that made them want to compromise on the issue of revenue sharing, and that was labor peace. Hmm. And when he figured that out, right, he delivered that labor peace for 20, what would we go, 21 straight years, right, 22 now, I guess. Um, he delivered that labor peace. Um, and what the large markets came to realize was he was right. If he, 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 I, I can give up a little bit on revenue sharing and still do great. 
as long as you just keep the product on the field and let the greatest game in the world do what it does with its fans. So, so to circle back then to the original premise, which is that sometimes you have to sit and make decisions that are going to be unpopular with one or another of your owners, one of the other people, without getting into too many or whatever details you're comfortable talking about, are those conversations you will have privately? Is that something where you'll call someone up and say, look, this is before, I'm not, before the press conference, before the press release, before Pat Courtney is, is, is informing you know, all the media. Is that something you're having a conversation? Listen, this is the reason I need to do this. Yeah. Look, I, I would never surprise an owner yeah. with a disciplinary decision. I mean, that, 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 that would really not be very smart. Right. Um, you know, I think it's important um, to have the confidence um, in your position to call and explain to somebody, this is what I'm going to do. Whether they agree or don't agree, I think most people appreciate that effort, and it takes the edge off what can be a very difficult situation. Yeah, because I know how close you are to Roger Goodell, and and you know, he went through a thing last year where it really felt like one of the most influential and powerful owners in the sport had it in for him, and that like, it seems to have rectified itself now. But that was a... <laughs> That felt like a dicey situation just from the outside looking in. That felt like a situation I myself would not want to be in. Well, uh, let me say this. Yeah. Um, I have a rule about not commenting on other people's dicey situations, <laughs> so I'm going to leave that one alone. I think, um, you know, all of us, you know, Roger, Adam, Gary, we all have um, difficult issues. It's part of the job, and um, I, I think the trick um, as I said originally, is to try to keep your eye on doing the right thing because over time, even if there was a little window where you have a problem with somebody, people come to realize you're doing the, you're trying to do the right thing, and they give you credit for that. So I, I mentioned that I, I know you and Roger Goodell have been friends for a really long time. Mm-hmm. You basically yeah. grew up together, certainly professionally grew up together over the years. So I wonder, when you and he, or if Adam Silver, Gary Bettman, whoever it may be, when you guys get together, what do you talk about? What, what, what? Again, I'm not asking for details that you're not comfortable sharing. But generally speaking, what kinds of things do you, who occupy this extraordinarily rare position in sports, what kinds of conversations do you have? You know, um, we do get together periodically, the four of us. Um, you know, occasionally we'll be on a panel together or whatever. Sometimes we just set up a meeting. It is the things we let. Let me do don't and then do talk about. We rarely talk about our internal political owner relations issues you know those are private and you know they should always be that way what we generally talk about is issues of mutual concern so when you know it became clear that um the united states was changing in terms of its approach to sports betting we had conversations about how we were going to approach those issues it's those type of things that we talk about I wasn't going to even mention that, but since you did, I'm so strongly in favor of that, and I know that there are a lot of mixed feelings about it, but I've always felt, and and this, I recognize that this might be an oversimplification, but it seems to me this stuff is going on, so we can either have some say in it, some control over it, some oversight of it, some real understanding of what it is, or not. It feels to me we have been choosing not for a really long time. Right. I I mean, I think the reality is sports betting happens. The choice you have to make is do you want it out in the open, regulated, 
um, or do you want it happening in a way that is illegal with all that goes with something being illegal? I mean, obviously, there's, there's ramifications to that. Um, I think that the reality is we're better off with it out in the open and regulated. I think the one thing that um, I would have differently than the way it's evolved, I think a uniform federal system um, would be a good thing. Uh, I think that leaving it to the states to proceed individually, probably a mistake over the long haul, but, you know, that's the political process in the United States, and it, it is what it is. But, I, you know, Senator Schumer did introduce a bill kind of with some minimum standards. Um, I think that would be a great thing to see move forward. Well, we're, we're not even a full year into whatever it is that it is now, but I, I guess I would just ask in very general terms, did it create a lot of headaches for you? Were, were there things you had to deal with that were oh, unexpected or problems? Oh, it was a major strategic initiative yeah. for us. Um, I, I sent some of our best people to Europe um, and to Australia to talk to um, the governing bodies, the leagues who went through um, a period of time when sports betting became more pervasive. Um, we learned a ton from them about um, what the opportunities are, but maybe even more important, the places where they felt um, that betting became a little too pervasive in terms of its connection to sport. And, you know, we've proceeded cautiously as a result of those learnings. But, yeah, it's a major issue for us. Okay. So I didn't mean to get bogged down in that because – I don't want to waste our time with things that you talk about all the time. Here's something I'm fascinated by. Sports, it strikes me, is a unique business in that it really has two bottom lines, at least if you're a team. You've got, did we make money or lose money this year, which is how basically every other business in the world operates. And then it's, did we win or lose? And how you measure success in sports, I think, is different than it is in other places. So from where you sit. There are a million different metrics that people will analyze about baseball all the time. How do you measure success? Well, I think that um, it, it is the popularity of the game, right, at the end of the day. And we look at ratings, attendance. Um, you know, in today's world, you have to look at things like social media activity, the place of the sport in um, American culture. And um, that's how we generally measure our success. Obviously, we want to be successful financially. But I'll tell you, I, I, you know, I think this is a misconception out there. I think most owners would trade a win for financial success. They, they, most of them have made money places and, quite frankly, probably could make more money somewhere else than in professional sports. Um, they're in it to win. And I think it's one of the things that makes baseball so compelling is the competitive spirit that drives all 30 of our teams. Um, I think this year we look at our product on the field and we say, wow, this was a successful year for us. Why do I say that? Iconic franchises did great things. Start with the Boston Red Sox, but it was also L.A. New York had a great year. Um, we had um, a great champion from last year. That was a story throughout the year and into the postseason. Looked like they had a chance uh, to, to to repeat, and then maybe most important, you know, the Milwaukee's, the Oakland's, the Tampa's that played really well. That gives people in all thirty of our markets the perception that yeah, you know, maybe they have an advantage in. New York or L.A. because they have a little more money. But you know what? My guy's really smart. 
And with less resources, he's got a really great team out there, in the case of Milwaukee, that almost went to the World Series. Yeah, there's a part of me, because I wrote down a couple of things here, and there's a part of me that wrote down, the first thing I wrote down was parity. Yeah. That from where you sit, maybe the, not the best, but a very important way to measure your success is parity. If, if, a, if a fence is only as strong as its weakest link, right. then if you have strength in places that are, are non-traditional, that that would be a very good measure it, of success. It's a huge measure. I mean, think about it. What do you sell, right? What we sell... 200 and, uh, 2,430 times a year is a competition on the field, okay? The, if, in fact, um, that competition is not compelling, right, your product isn't as good. And, you know, I do think people really get excited about a team. You know, take one that didn't go quite as far, Oakland. You know, I mean, Oakland was unbelievable, you know, I mean, they, they really accomplished a lot, and I think that a team like that is really good for our sport. But the Brewers go into seven games in the NLCS. Phenomenal. Against the Dodgers, so you have the classic David and Goliath. I, I think that's a reasonable way to look at it. A revenue, look, the sport is awash in money. I, I, I think most people who follow it are aware of that. I sometimes describe it as just an ATM. Um, and and television ratings are what they are. I, that's a challenge I know for you. It's a challenge for everybody. Um, I think that one reasonable way to look at it is to say, are all the teams generally doing well? Is is there a reason to, for everyone to be paying attention? Does Milwaukee have a chance to compete? Like, I always thought pro football had that great. If Peyton Manning plays his whole career in Indianapolis, right. which he almost did, and Brett Favre plays his whole career in Green Bay, which he almost did, that's a good thing for the sport. They don't have Absolutely. to go to New York and Los Angeles. A- absolutely. And honestly, I think that issue of competitive balance um, – is almost more important for us because of the volume of games, right? I mean, it, 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 there's, we play 162 times and, you know, you need that, um, sort of level of balance to make the competition compelling over what, what really is. It's a grind. It's a long, long season and, um, it's gotta be compelling. Let's talk then about change, which is, um, complicated for everyone. And I think especially so. For baseball, because baseball, more than not only any other sport, but almost any other industry I can think of, is so rooted in tradition. It's such an incredibly intrinsic part of the national history that any change is deemed by some people to be sacrilegious. But that's about the past, obviously. And there's the present, and that's where the players of today are concerned. They're concerned about the present, and you have to be concerned about the future. So how does a person in where you're sitting make decisions relative to the future when the present, meaning the players, don't want you to change anything, and the past, meaning the traditionalists, don't want you to change anything? The way I look at it is there are certain things that can never change, right? Um, you, you, you know, a nine-inning game. Um, the fact that you get three outs in a half an inning. Um, you know, those things have to stay the, the same. Um, what I have learned over my first four years is that whatever you change is going to draw initial negative reaction. So, you know, we changed the intentional walk rule. Even though we knew that Throwing four pitches resulted in something other than the guy going to first base only one in 1,000 times. Literally, one in 1,000 times. But 
same thing, the slide rule at second base, the collision rule at home plate, the limit on mound visits. You go back, you look at the press. Oh, my God, the world was going to end in response to all those. What I've learned about that is you have to have the confidence in the change you're making to get over that initial period of criticism, not pay too much attention to it. And you know what happens? People adjust, even in our game. People adjust. So you want to find those things that stay away from the, you know, third rail. If you touch them, you really have a problem. And be aggressive um, with respect to the kind of change you're willing to tolerate. And then just accept the fact that in baseball, more so than any other sport, there's going to be an initial period where a lot of people are going to say, oh, he's crazy. Why is he trying to get him to do that? But you know what? They'll get over it. That's the thing. And the reason is because those traditionalists, their concern is the past, right? Right. You're going to hear it from players. You're going to make changes, and you're going to hear it from players. Their concern is the present. Your job, you're the commissioner of Major League Baseball. Your job is the future at the end of the day. Which brings me to the next question, which is we live in 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 a world now where people want Offense. I mean, football has made enormous changes to benefit the offense. Basketball has made changes to benefit the offense. Do you feel like one of the future, one of the things you have to look at in your sport, whether it's this offseason or sometime in the near future, are changes that will benefit offense because that just does seem to be where everything is going? Yeah, I, I think about it this way. I think the most troubling number for us is the period of time between balls being put in play. And um, we need more action in the game. I think this will be a topic that we'll discuss extensively during the off season. But I, I, I do also want to say this. You know, we love our product on the field. Um, we think that uh, it, it is compelling, um, that um, the game itself is sound. And it's important to remember the changes we're talking about are changes that are consistent with the type of changes that have been made historically in baseball, that have been made in other sports, and it should not be taken as an indictment of kind of the bones of the game. The bones of the game are great. They make far bigger changes in football every year. And and this one year, people did go crazy, right? This, this rule about them landing on the quarterbacks. For the first two or three weeks, everybody lost their mind. I haven't heard anyone say anything about it in six weeks. The numbers are up. The ratings are up. The points are up. The fantasy is up. This is what it's about. You have to ignore the, the hue and cry because your job is to worry about the future. And that's what people ultimately want. Right. And I, look, I do think, and, and this is an asset. I think baseball, um, because people are so attached to it, um, evokes more critical commentary, particularly from the media, about everything that you do, and even if you do nothing, about what they're observing on the field at a particular point in time. And, you know, I know it used to drive Commissioner Seeley crazy. I take it kind of as an indication of um, the fact that our sport, occupies a unique place in our culture and you know it may be true that more people watch the super bowl uh, but in terms of passion surrounding the game we have a unique spot and you take that as a compliment and you got to manage it it's an asset you got to manage i agree I, I i get tired i don't hear as much of it as i used to I get tired of people making comparisons of baseball to football. There's just different things. Football now occupies its place in society. It is enormous. Baseball occupies an enormous space in society also. You have to worry about that and not always be making those comparisons. 
analytics. So I, I was just very recently back at my alma mater at Northwestern, and um, I spoke to the undergrads, and there are so many young people who are interested in the business, in sports, business in general. And I told them that it is my belief that at some point in the relatively near future, 100% of the teams in sports, in all sports, we'll, we'll deal with baseball here, but all sports, yep. will be making 100% of their decisions based on analytics. Does that make sense to you or not? Well, this is a tough one for me uh, because I am a data-driven decision maker. I think having data um, about what has happened in the past is a really important piece of the decision-making process. I am not a data slave, um, meaning that I do believe that there's human experience, instinct, observation that cannot be captured in data that you need to lay on top uh, of those analytics in order to get you where you want to be. Um, I, I think you see it. Um, and it gets ignored in our front offices. You know, a lot of even the most analytically based front offices, you know, a lot of them will have that old-time baseball guy. You know what I mean by that? Around with them. And, you know, that that adds. But that guy life. was the general manager when we were kids. And now he's like the fun uncle that we bring with us on yeah. trips. And oh, I don't deny that. we change. ask his opinion on something. Yeah, I don't deny that change. I, I, I just, I guess... Um, my comment was in response to the notion that every decision was going to be, yeah. you know, data driven. I, I, I guess maybe a hundred percent is overstating it, but the reason I say it that way is I'm telling these kids, you want to be in sports? That's what you want to study. That's what you want to learn because that is where all the opportunity is going to be into the future. I think it's the best entree into professional sports now. Um, I, I, I think that. You know, it's the single biggest change. You know, I started working in baseball in 1987. Literally, when I got here, you would not – like, we were the first people who were dragging computers around. I mean, people didn't – you know, they just didn't use um, those sorts of analytical tools. And now, you know, it drives most everything clubs do. What is the data that you are concerned with from your office? L let me – go back to an issue we just talked about. When we talk about um, making changes to the game, we always do focus groups, quantitative research with fans to understand particularly what our avids are thinking because it's the avids that drive, you know, your negative conversation. Mm -hmm. It's obviously the avids you want to be most concerned about. Uh, but, you know, that's the kind, I mean, that's the kind of data. I'll tell you, and it drives our fundamental strategies. I mean, when I started, I had two things that I was really focused on. Youth participation, getting kids playing the game, um, and getting young people in the ballpark. Why do we focus on those two things? Because our research told us they were the biggest determinants of fan avidity as an adult, right? If you played, you're way more likely to be a fan. Single biggest factor. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we have invested... Uh, in that participation market, we've been the fastest growing participation sport in the United States the last three years, the most participated sport under age 12. And when you talk about your future, 
those are huge numbers. Forget, you know, whether you drew 72 million or 69 million this year. Those participation numbers are what's going to drive in the future. So that could really be another answer to the question, how do you measure success? How many kids are playing your sport at a time? You mentioned, again, I, I don't like comparing one sport against another. It's, it's sort of like comparing steak against pizza. Right. They're two different things. But if you are going to look, if, if, if young children, if, if young athletic children and their parents have options in front of them, right. it, it is just a statement of fact that football is becoming a decreasingly popular one for a variety of reasons that we all understand. There's right. concerns about legitimate concerns about concussions and things like that. And so I suppose on one level that is an opportunity for other sports to fill that void. Yeah, look, it's, I mean, that's another competitive market. Right. I mean, we compete mm-hmm. for the entertainment dollar with our product that we put on the field. Um, we also compete for kids because the, the dy- dynamics that drive um, fan avidity in my sport, exactly the same in the NFL and the NBA. And everybody wants to have that youth participation. And, you know, we, we some of the things that we've done, um, I think have side benefits to them um you know we've invested in underserved areas um you know we i think we have eight percent of our major league players are african-american the last five years 20 percent of our first rounders have been african-american almost all of those kids have some touch with a major league baseball program so what's that tell you that's another kind of data what that tells you is that if you invest you get a return on that investment. You're getting better athletes. You're getting the diversity that you want and need in your big league product. And, you know, it drives your decision making. This is a self-serving question. What does media coverage of the sport look like 10 years from now? It's fascinating to me where this stuff is going. Between you got cable television now and all of the stuff that's going to all the over-the-top streaming stuff. you got digital stuff. you got all... What does media coverage of baseball look like 10 years from now? Well, I'm a believer in aggregators. And what do I mean by that? I, I mean, there is a place, whether you're talking 5, 10, or 15 years from now, whether it's cable or virtual MVPDs that go over the top, those sorts of Hulu and those sorts of services – I believe consumers are going to want aggregated content. They're not going to be wanting to pull this from there and, you know, individual decisions every night as to what they're going to do. So I I think there's a core of aggregated content that consumers are going to continue to buy in a bundle. Um, I think beyond that, what you're going to see is increased flexibility with respect to other platforms, Right, that that there are going to be more people who are maybe not in that aggregated group who are going to want access to content. I think that the aggregators are going to realize we want to catch some of those people too, and there's going to be multiple platforms that are more specialized and addressing the the needs of the consumer. It's going to be more flexible, and you got to be one thing we've really learned: you have to be on the platforms where people want to be, and you know it, it, there's value. In exclusivity, I understand that, but there's also value in making sure your fans are getting your product in the way that they want. And you know, I've always had one problem with you, and that is that I felt I should have been the commissioner of Major League Baseball. This was a, a long-running; people thought it was a joke. I was dead serious over all those years on Mike and Mike that I, I felt that I would have been very good at this job. Um, and in fact, when when you and I forget who the other two people were who were sort of the final candidates, I remember saying to Bud, "Would it have killed you to put my name on the list?" I mean, no, it, it would have been a goof. Everyone would have would have felt good about it. But 
in all kidding aside, now you've been in this role for some time. If I had been the commissioner, what would have been the best thing about the job? What is the best thing about being commissioner of Major League Baseball? Oh, I think the, the, the best thing about the job is the job itself. And what do I mean by that? It is the relationship with a game um, that is so important to American culture. Um, it, it, you know, um, every year, it, it, think about it this way for me, every year I get to October 1st and I think, how good is this, right? I'm going to go to two wild card games. I'm going to try to see as many division series and LCS games as I possibly can see. Um, and then I'm going to go to the World Series and hopefully stay there 10 days and watch seven great baseball games. That, that, that's the best part of the job. It's the game. That makes a lot of sense. I would have liked that part. What would I not have liked? What's the hardest part of the job? Oh, I think the the, the hardest part of the job is what you and I um, talked about before. It's the governance, um, having to, to deal with issues that affect the people you're trying to help in a negative way. That dissonance is very, very tough. And, it, and it's where, I think if you look back historically, it's where commissioners have gotten themselves into the most problems across sports. Um, and then finally, uh, you and I have one other thing in common, and that is that our mutual love affair with the game of golf. And, and before we taped this interview, before we began having this, we just sat here and talked about golf. And candidly, we could have done that for three hours. So what is it? I, I try and explain this sometimes to people who don't get it, and I can't do it. But golf does not, when I'm playing, it does not feel to me like I'm wasting time, killing time. It, feel, it feels like I'm actually accomplishing something. It does not feel like leisure to me. It is, it, is, it, is, it is an obsession of almost a religious level for me. And I know for people like us, I, I'm including you in that because I know you to be one of those. So when people ask you, why do you love golf so much? This has nothing to do with being commissioner anymore, by the way. Why do you love golf so much? What is the answer? Well, I find the golf course to be the best place to not think about anything else. I think, you know, for those of us who are competitive – um, and, you know, whether you're a four handicap or a 24 handicap, you still want to play the best you can play. And I think um, because golf is such an individual sport, it requires constant, you know, constant concentration on what you're doing. You as an individual are doing and, you know, it gets everything else out of my head. Um, it really is a head clearing experience for me. And that's why I love it. Yes, I don't fully understand the concept I know so many people do it, of using golf to have business discussions. I know that people use golf and they're going on, a, you know, hey, we've got a, a bunch of guys I'm trying to do business with. We're going to go play golf. When I play golf, I like to play with other people who only want to talk about golf. I don't want to talk about anything else. Well, I, I will say this. Um, I have played a fair amount of what people would characterize as business golf. Mm -hmm. I don't think that much business actually gets done on the golf course that, yeah I, I you know i mean like, maybe making big deals i keep hearing about all these big deals that get made on the golf course. maybe before or after <laughs> you know but i mean actually walking around out there when you're hitting shots i think people overstate how much of that happens you're not standing over like a 12 foot right to left breaking putt and thinking to yourself all right i'll double it if you if, if you guys throw in the you know the wild card game yeah no i i i think that gets exaggerated i do think before and after um you know a lot of business gets done and i think the other thing you know 
it's sort of where you started. Um, golf is one of those kind of bonding, you know, things between people. Um, golfers like golfers, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I, I do think it, it is an opportunity to make relationships with people um, that have benefited, certainly benefited me um, in my career, in my business dealings. Um, so, you know, to the extent that you're talking about that, and I'm a relationship guy in terms of, you know, being able to make deals, I, I think it's really important to have those kind of relationships. Well, listen, I, I, I am very aware of how busy you are and the fact that you carved out all this time for me here today, right after the World Series. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. This was the perfect way to wrap up this season for me with a with a, a really good sports conversation that was a little bit. This is exactly what I wanted this podcast to be was. A sports conversation, and most of our the interviews have been related to sports, um, but not the sort of thing that you would have all the time in all these other places. And uh, I very much appreciate you doing this. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful off season, and I will see you soon. Thanks, Mike. I'll see you soon. All right. So let me thank very quickly before I wrap up here. My thanks to Amy Trask, to Michelle Roberts, to Paul Feinbaum, to Murr James Murray from the Impractical Jokers, to Jay Wright, coach of Villanova. To Matt Hasselbeck, to Zach Lowe, Harlan Coben, Rex Ryan, Danny Meyer from Shake Shack, and, and to Rob Manfred, my guests, over this season of I'm Interested. This has been so much fun. I knew I would like this. I think I liked it more than I thought I would like it. We're going to take a little time off now. We're going to come back in the spring with, with all new interviews and all new conversations. I thank you, everyone who has listened to these. You can still go back and listen to the older ones. If, if you have not heard any of our conversations before, you can go back in the ESPN app and you can hear all the, um, the, the interviews that we've done before. There's been a lot of really interesting and fun stuff. So thank you all very much for spending this time with us. Have a wonderful winter, and I will see you again soon.